from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn to your pew Bibles to King, 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 through 9, which is found on page 323 in the Old Testament. Listen to God's word. Now there were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, why should we sit here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. Therefore, let us desert to the Armenian camp. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight us against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was and fled for their lives. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate and drank, carried off silver, gold, and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back, entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, what we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> Continue to hear God's word for you and for me this morning. There's a little, little centipede that just crawled <laughs> down chapter 9. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is not necessary for me to write you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. And so I thought it is necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us for the rendering of this ministry. It not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we may be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard this before. You are what you own. Image is everything. There is not enough, and you should be afraid. These four stories prevail in our secular culture today. We have been tackling them one by one, week by week. We've covered two so far, and today we enter into this third story that prevails in our time and in our place. There is not enough. We want to engage this story as well as these other stories with a different story. We want to tell a different story. We want to live a different story that subverts their power and leans into the good news story that Christ lived for, that he died for, that he was raised for. So this week, in this third week of our series, we look at There Is Not Enough. Now this story, I believe, is only possible when we view the world through the lens of scarcity. It's only possible when we commit to a perspective that everything, everything is in short supply. Everything. Love, friendship, time, knowledge, power, material possessions, money, the earth's resources, popularity, happiness. Jobs, opportunities, safety, security, everything. Everything is in short supply. Things are scarce. There is not enough. And when we are convinced to live under the shadow of this story, that there's not enough, we become ignorance ignorant rather to the difference between necessity and the non-essential. We rarely ask 
what it means to actually be satisfied. We don't even know how to ask what it means for us to be content. In this story, the moral values of simplicity and moderation become irrelevant. They actually become obsolete. As I think about this story, there is not enough. I was trying to think of an image that may capture the depth and the breadth of the way in which this story prevails, and I began to think about children's birthday parties and piñatas. First off, I've always been confused about the birthday party piñata because they are usually constructed in the form of something or someone that is loved by the child. A Disney character, a football or a basketball or a favorite superhero. Here is an image of what the child loves, of what the child values, of what the child reveres and the idea behind the piñata is to knock the thing so hard with a stick or a bat so that it is destroyed that it breaks open and literally spills its guts. It's psychologically confusing. Break the thing you love because only when it is destroyed will it yield what you desire. The guts, of course, are the prize, all that teeth-rotting, sugar-high-inducing candy. So after the children take turns whacking at the thing they love, it splits open, the candy pours out, and the children dive onto the ground, clutching and grabbing, scratching and clawing, stuffing their pockets, believing that these pieces of candy are the last pieces of candy on the planet. What happens when we view everything like it's a piñata? What happens when you start to view people or your possessions or your job, your career, or institutions or the church? What happens when the thing you're supposed to love and revere and honor and respect becomes only valuable to you based on what it will yield, what it will give us. So we take a metaphorical bat to it till it splits open, spills its guts, and gives us what we want. And when it does, we look at that yield and we think, hey, there's not enough here. There's not enough. I mean, take, for example, our political process. To be sure, it is something that we should admire, isn't it? It is something that we should cherish and tend to, and yet we take a bat to it, knocking the heck out of it until it gives us what we want. And when it does, we say there is not enough. There's not enough freedom. There's not enough power. There are not enough ways to articulate what it means to be an American, and so we all fight and harm each other over what we perceive to be scarce political identities and scarce political resources. Or perhaps we view it from a different perspective. Maybe we view it as if we are on the other end of the bat. Some of us know what it's like to feel like a piñata, 
Life is taking a bat to us until we spill our guts, until we produce, until we perform and prove ourselves worthy and give to the world what we think the world expects of us. And when we do crack and yield, we feel as if the world looks at us and says, is that all you got? Is that all there is? That's not enough. You're not enough. Or perhaps we view it from a theological angle. We'll put the metaphorical bat back into our hands. Theologically, we take the bat to God. Because God is sort of like divine Santa Claus, right? Giving us what we want. And we feel like we have to press God. We have to push God. we got to take the bat to God. we got to crack God open because somehow we believe that God is not generous. We've got to push and hit and crack until God begins to give to us. And then we look at what God gives to us and we say, is that all you got? That's not enough. It's not enough grace. It's not enough love. It's not enough forgiveness. There's there's not enough acceptance here. There's not enough mission. There's not enough resources here, God, to go around. And so what begins to happen is we begin to draw distinctions and deem some people worthy to receive what God gives and others unworthy to receive it. We live as if there are not enough of God's blessings for everyone. You probably assume by now, by the way I'm, I'm speaking, that I really believe this narrative, there is not enough. I believe this story to be incredibly destructive. It destroys the things and the people we love and respect and revere. It destroys our capacity to be generous. It destroys our capacity to be grateful. And so we have to find a different story than that one. There has to be a good news story. There has to be a story of abundance, and we know it to be so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel comes to us in many different forms. Its testimony comes in the life of the church as it bears witness to this good news. It also comes to us quite plainly in the scriptures, but it, but it doesn't always come to us just in the New Testament. The good news of the gospel, of an abundant narrative of God, is littered throughout the scriptures. And I want to tell one particular story from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. It comes to us from 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Kathy read just a, a little bit of it. And I want to give you, as they say, the rest of the story. The book of First and Second Kings were originally a single body of work that uh, provided chronological and continuous accounting of about 400 years of Israel's history from 970 B.C. to uh, 560 B.C. And the story I want to tell you this morning took place when God's people were divided into two kingdoms. Go back with me to your Sunday school days and, and you remember that at a time the, the nation of Israel was divided in two. To the north you had Israel with its capital city of Samaria and to the south you had Judah with its capital city of Jerusalem. And at this time, both kingdoms had a king. They each had a king. And the focus of this particular story is, is, is honing in on the north and this city called Samaria and the king of the northern kingdom called Jehoram. Jehoram is in the throes of one of the most difficult seasons of his reign. 
The Assyrian army, they're called the Arameans in this text, but they're, they're from the larger empire of Assyria, have come south. Led by their king, Ben-Hadad, they have laid siege to the city. Now, siege was a common military practice. It was a tactic designed to cut off anything good from going into the city and anything good from going out of the city. The idea of the invading army would be that you'd, you'd block off all of the resources. You'd block off access to, to farmlands outside of the, the city walls. You would block trade, thus throwing the city into economic turmoil. A famine would begin to take place in that city, and you would wear the people down just by your very presence, just by creating this blockade around the city. And the notion would be that the city and its rulers and its political leaders would become so depleted emotionally and spiritually and psychologically that they just would give up. They'd surrender, and the invading king or military leader would not have to give one troop over in death. They would simply relent and surrender. Jehoram, the king of Israel, is walking along the, the city wall, and he can look out over the city wall, and he can see in the distance Ben-Hadad and his army, their very presence mocking him. And he looks inside the city walls, and what he sees on the inside is a city that is dying. Things have gotten so bad that some of the citizens have even resorted to cannibalism to survive. He learns of this, and he rends his clothes. He tears his royal robes, and under his robes, he's wearing sackcloth. What you would wear to a funeral. What one would wear if they were in the midst of grief, if they were lamenting someone or something. And to be sure, the king is lamenting the impending death of his city. But I believe, theologically speaking, he is also mourning the absence of God. Have you ever felt like your life was under siege? Nothing good was coming in and nothing good was going out. And you ever wonder where God is in those moments? Is God still God? For Jehoram, he, he's mad. He's angry. God has abandoned the people. God has forgotten God's promises. And as human beings are prone to do when they're angry with God, and this is a whole nother sermon topic for another day, but as people are prone to do when they're angry at God, they go after God's people. They go after the community that represents God. They go after the, the priests and the prophets. And in this case, the prophet of the day, the man on top, was a man by the name of Elijah. You've heard of him. He is the prophet of the day, and Jehoram is so angry at God for God not showing up, for God being absent in this moment of siege, that he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to kill God's prophet. I can't touch God. I don't know where God is, but I can touch his prophet. So he goes after him, and some of the elders in that, in that city uh, begin to barricade Elijah inside of a home and the king is coming to take his life and they're banging on the door but Elijah on the other side continues to prophesy a word of hope continues to say that God is still God that God even in the midst of siege 
will show up and make things right. That's what precedes all of that reading this morning. And if you follow, if you remember now, the, the, the camera which has been focused on the city, which has been focused on, on Jehoram, which has been focused on, on the encircled army around the city walls, it's been focused on the prophet Elijah, now changes its focus. And of all people, goes to four leprous men. Living outside of the city because that's where they needed to live. Leprosy from a, a spiritual metaphor uh, type of perspective is, is one of the ways that the church fathers and mothers talked about our sinful state, that we were not right with God and that we weren't right with each other and that we, we, we were separated from God and separated from each other and the, the leper literally leads, lives rather separated from the people. Because of their disease, they're alienated. And, and these lepers have this comical conversation. The Bible can be very funny when you understand the context of it. So here they are. They're on the outskirts of the city, and they begin to talk to each other. And they, they say to one another, look, we're dead if we stay here. Right? We're dead. Nobody's coming to be generous because there's nothing to be generous with. We can't go back into the city because there's a famine, there's no food. The only thing left, the only other option we have is to go to the Aramean army, to go to Ben-Hadad, the Assyrian leader, and to plead and beg for our lives. Sure, sure enough, we could be killed. But he also might have mercy on us and give us something to eat. It's this like moment of clarity, this moment of coming to our senses. I liken it to when the prodigal son, you know that story, is eating the, the pig slop. And, and, and the writer Luke brilliantly says he came to his senses. There's, 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 not nothing, uh, there's nothing mentioned about his morality or his repentance. He's just being as rational as he can be. These lepers are being as rational as they can be. And so they agree that this is their plan. They're going to go and they're gonna to go to this Aramean camp. The, the camera angle moves one more time. This time it moves ahead of them. And it says, the narrator says, that, that God had caused a great sound to come upon Ben-Hadad and his soldiers to the point that they actually believed that the king of Israel somehow hired the Hittites and the Egyptians, a common enemy of Assyria, to come to their rescue and their aid. Somehow they hear the roll of the chariots, the horses stomping in, the, the, the army marching in to rescue Israel. They become so frightened and so scared that they leave everything behind. They go home. The four lepers show up and it's like a pinata has just been cracked. Follow me? And, and, and it gets even more hilarious here. The four lepers, it says, go from one tent. They eat, they drink, they take silver, they take gold, and they bury it in the ground. They go to the next tent. They eat and they drink, they take silver and they take gold, and they bury it in the ground. Do you see the pinata? And all the kids streaming for the candy, putting it in their pockets, stuffing it. And I've always imagined, 
you may be at a, a dinner party and someone may have a glass of wine and they become a little more vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? And they want to share more. They want to be more introspective. I feel like this is what happens with these guys. They've done this a few times from tent to tent. And they all of a sudden get real with each other. And they say to one another, what we're doing is wrong. What we're doing is wrong. They say, this is a day of good news. We need to go back and tell the king and the people all that God has done. See, that's the difference between a story that says there is not enough and a story that says with God there is always enough. There is always enough. When a person roots their identity and their life's purpose in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ultimate gift that God has given the world, you quickly realize that with God there is enough. Second Corinthians, Paul says it this way, and God is able to provide you with every blessing and abundance so that by always having enough of everything, do you hear that? By always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. With God, we always have enough of everything. We're liberated then to go back and tell others, there's, hey, there's enough grace, there's enough love, there's enough justice, there's enough equality, there's enough opportunity, there's enough resources to be the people God has called us to be. Friends, we're like the lepers who have shown up as God's abundance has been cracked open and poured out into the world and into our lives. We can either hoard the abundance to ourselves, believing that there is not enough for everybody, or we can go into the world and share God's abundance and be grateful for God's abundance and tell about God's abundance and live a life of abundance in a world that often feels like it is under siege. The question remains, which will we choose? Amen. Rooted in God, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get a different perspective than the world has knowing that God has given abundantly to us, that with God there is enough, and we can tell that story and live that story. And so may we be a people who does just that. And as we go, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May this peace abide with you this day and forevermore.